get back to this concept of the creeds of the early church. Now, when I was a boy, if you heard the word creed in a sermon, it was then going to be followed up by a, we don't do that sort of thing here. We don't believe in that. We have no creed but the Bible. And that phrase was just pounded into me. Later, I would learn that none of the early Christians would have said anything like that. In fact, they couldn't because they didn't have the Bible or even the concept of what we call Old Testament and New Testament. They had scriptures, which to them were the Old Testament. The, the New Testament, what would become that, these are letters still to be written or they had been written and begun the circulating, but they hadn't been gathered and certainly hadn't been gathered, collated, and stuck with the Jewish scriptures to make a new Bible. They didn't have that. Whenever they talked about what they believed, they would cite, they would, they would quote a creed, a credo. It just means what I believe, a statement, a collection of statements about what we believe and what they routinely said to each other to encourage each other because we are what we believe. What you believe will eventually become your attitude and attitudes are what drive your actions. And so coalescing and saying this we believe is a very, very important part of life. This is one of the earliest churches of Christ. As you know, and the state put up a little marker outside to, to note that, even though it does say that we got hit by a cyclone and those don't exist in the Northern Hemisphere, it's still a pretty good sign. Um, I'm not sure who put it up. I would like to have a word with them. Uh, well, actually, several words I've practiced. The, one of the men that helped start this was Alexander Campbell. He had a paper, and he was asked what he thought about people reciting a creed. And this might surprise you, and it's rather long, but I'm going to read it and it'll be put up there as well. The letter, my good sir, the question is, can you repeat it, referring to the Apostles' Creed, as received by the Catholic Church? Campbell starts this way. I have no objection to say that the facts stated in said creed are all sustained by the Apostles, it reads thus, as received by the Church of England, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. He goes on to say, if this be a correct version of it, taken from the common prayer book published in Hartford, 1826, I can say ex animo that I believe every word of it, because it is not, like all modern creeds, a synopsis of opinions, but a brief narrative of facts and of all the great gospel facts. That it is of great antiquity, I never doubted. Its simplicity and freedom from abstraction are internal evidences that it is ancient, beyond all other human creeds. And it is proof positive that the word belief, or the word faith, was understood at the time of its formation, as I have labored to make all my readers understand it. Then, the belief of facts well attested constitutes faith. 
I have no evidence whatsoever the apostles drafted a summary, but that the apostles' doctrine authorizes every proposition or statement of fact, uh, faith in this creed, I am fully persuaded. I am indeed glad that you have called my attention to it again, because it so well sustains all that I have written on the subject of faith and the simplicity of views of the earliest Christians. I had no idea. Growing up, creeds were the bad guys. By the way, Dean Barnum uh, showed, uh, brought this to my attention, and I appreciate that. I thought that none of us had ever said the creed. And then you go back in the history, and you find not only did we say it, but we endorsed it. We encouraged it. What a change. Well, we looked at the Apostles' Creed quickly last week. Let's look for a moment at the world from which it sprang. We talked somewhat about this last week. So some of this will sound a little familiar, but there's a lot more information here. We know a lot more about the first hundred years of the church and about the church after 325 than we do those years in the middle. Those years in the middle were very dark years, more than 200 years where they did not know what was coming next. We have a lot of hit or miss information here from letters and books that were written at the time or by people that quoted things that we don't even have anymore. While we don't have much of our faith story in that first 200 years, we have some. The Roman Empire often persecuted Christians during this time, but not all the time. The government was schizophrenic, which created a schizophrenic culture. So literally, one year, you might be, as a Christian, considered a good part of the community. And then because of something that happened in a long way from you in the city of Rome and a new guy pops up or the old guy just gets upset at something, the next day you are a cast out people, unemployable, untrustworthy, unloved, and maybe even killed. The schizophrenia of the government and culture was not remarkable because that's the way despots have always ruled. You give anybody absolute power, they will use it absolutely. And you will be in and out according to their whims. Christians often went underground into catacombs, into closed off rooms, locked doors between them and everyone else because to worship was dangerous often. Not always, but often. Some Christians to this day have to do this. I've worked, um, uh, talking rather, I've talked with missionaries to China who say that in some regions, whenever you go in to worship, the song leader will call out a number and they will open up their books and they will read the song silently because if they sang, it would make enough noise that a neighbor would hear and then the police would come. This is not that unusual in our world breaks my heart to think of it, but this has been going on a long time. The world outside the catacombs was a mess. In the year 130 to 250, we find apologists writing against atheists, against heretics like Marcion that we named last week, Valentinus, uh, Valentinius, uh, that we'll mention a little bit later here, and writing defenses of their faith to Roman rulers saying, we are not a danger to you. We are the best people you could have because we don't want anything from anybody else and we give what we have to everybody else. 
We love our neighbors. We do not take up arms against them. We have no interest in overthrowing the government. We are here just to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that's an amazing set of literature from those first 300 years. But the government kept looking at that saying, there's got to be a catch. There were names of great writers called, uh, such as Justin Martyr, Melito of Sardis, Arnobius, and, and many others that are recorded in history, along with some of their work that remains. And all of that work was critically necessary. They were trying to save souls, yes, but they were also trying to save lives, the lives of these Christians. But sometimes some of those writers and some of those leaders went off, off the rails entirely, like Valentinius, who nearly won election as, as Bishop of Rome, even though he was a Gnostic. And that belief system had pagan roots and pagan philosophy. It was gaining ground. And this is very, very controversial, by the way. Uh, I'll just tell you where I am on it uh, and just be aware that many people would disagree with me. I believe that some of the things that Paul wrote and some of the things that John wrote were really warnings against Gnosticism as it was beginning to coalesce. There are some who believe Gnosticism hadn't really risen by that time, but I think, yeah, the, 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 the ideas behind it had. And Paul and John are writing saying, don't have anything to do with this. Books were written by bishops and by other Christian leaders to help churches stay focused, stay faithful. Some of them, like uh, a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, almost found their way into what we today call the Bible. Fraud showed up too. There were fraudulent books and, and there were fraudulent people like Montanus in 155 AD who claimed he was the promised paraclete, that comforter that Jesus had said would come. There were a lot of issues. There were a lot of problems. To help spread the gospel, we had to shrink what we believed into the, the shortest, smallest possible portable space where it could be passed on verbally from one to the other and stay the same. Tatian produced something called the Diatessaron because he saw the gospels that were being spread about, and he was aware that a church that, that was blessed to receive, let's say, the book of Luke, may never see Matthew, may never see John. And so he gathered the four gospels together and decided to make it more portable. And he wrote the Diatessaron, which was the first combined gospel. Today, that's typically called the harmony of the gospel. And you can go buy a harmony of the gospel. Several people have done it. And that's where they, they, they shove all four of them into one so that you get all the stories and all the words in a portable size. And that's why he did it, thinking this will at least keep the story alive. If we can't transport four books, if we can't keep four books safe, perhaps we can keep one book safe. Other letters from the apostles are being gathered, translated, and honored, preserved. But then division struck the heart of the church over something that you and I look at and go, what? But it was important to them, and we'll explain why. Around 190, 190 AD, 190 AD, the bishop of Rome, and we're going to talk about that concept, excommunicated the churches in the east, mainly 
around Constantinople, and eventually that would be their location, uh, he, he excommunicated them. You are no longer Christian. Why? Because they didn't celebrate Easter on the same day as the churches in the West. Now we look at that and we go, why? Was, why was this so important? We can say that because we have a lot of things to keep us together. We have the written scriptures. We have church buildings. We have the Bill of Rights covering us that gives us protection, allows us to, to exercise our faith. And we are also in a place where freedom is not looked upon as a dangerous thing. They had none of those. You celebrated the same days on the same days to keep them together. Stay with the group. If we're not all doing it at the same time, that could be the start of splintering, they feared. Was there, were there some power games involved? Of course. They're humans, like we are. What doesn't have a power game attached to it? But it was mainly, we've got to stay together. Without Bibles in every home, or every church, or every city, celebrations and holy days are very important because that's when you gather together to tell the story. By the way, moms and dads, grandparents, very often we don't remember this. It is so important to talk to your children about the stories. Deuteronomy 6, just write it down or somewhere and go look at it later. As you rise, as you sit, as you go in, as you go out, wherever you are, pass on the stories. Because you would be amazed at how few of the stories your children and grandchildren know that you assume they know because we go to Easter and we celebrate Christmas. Well, they know some, but not all. And when they hear it all, it matters. It changes them. And then they can pass the story down. And you'll be able to deal with the, the generational changes. Uh, my, my daughter called me uh, five years ago on an Easter. And she said, I was explaining to Lucas, who was then my grandson uh, at, at age four, the Easter story. And he was getting visibly upset. And so I stopped and I asked him what was wrong. And he said, who killed Jesus? And so she started talking about, well, the Romans had a law, and, there, and, she, and he put up his wee hand and stopped her, which that's a very mead thing right there. And she said, what? He, he, he said, you don't understand. I need names. <laughs> well, she had called me to say, and I'm blaming you. And I went, fair enough. Fair enough. I will take this. But again, isn't it interesting that the four-year-old hearing the story is all of a sudden wrapped around us saying, wait a minute, we need to spread the stories. And so Easter was important. Now we need to step aside for a little bit here. How could they have bishops ruling over many churches? Don't the books of Timothy and Titus tell us that every congregation is to be overseen by a group of faithful adult uh, if we read it the way they wrote it, adult males that are faithful and older, elders and every congregation. Yes, Timothy and Titus does say that. It doesn't say every, but it does tell them to do that in their churches. And so we assume it means every. But think about this for a minute. The very men 
and I'm going to just say men at this stage because I'm sorry, we do have a lot of records of very faithful women who, who were martyrs to the faith, but they never made bishop at this stage. The very men who gathered these letters together, put them in the order that you've got them today, refer to them as scripture inspired by God necessary for the church, and often gave their lives and their families gave their lives up to protect these and pass them on to us, did not believe that they were collecting 66 books of rules for every church in every place until the end of time. They believed what our focus of our faith is, is Jesus Christ crucified, raised again, the Son of God. But this was our story. This is our narrative. These books are important. They believed they were free to organize as necessary to keep the story alive. In other words, they saw scripture as narrative containing laws. We have tended to look at it as laws containing a bit of narrative. They took seriously Paul's admonition to rightly divide the word. And so they would say, this doesn't apply to us. We're in a different situation than Paul was, but we have the same faith. We believe in God the Father Almighty. And they would go on with the Apostles' Creed. Did they get bits of it wrong? I, I think they did, yes. But I've got to tell you, I'm convinced beyond being convinced otherwise that we have bets wrong. Even the bets that I think I've got right might be wrong. But that is why we rejoice in the fact that our faith is in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. Our faith is in him to save us through grace. It is not, our faith is not in ourselves that we will find the perfect, pristine, precision faith doctrine and a way to worship. Because if your faith is in that, you didn't need a cross to save you. Because you can find that, maybe. But I don't think you can. I don't think you can find a pattern that must be bound upon all people in all places. But you certainly can find a savior. And that savior is for all people in all places. There were popes and anti-popes. An anti-pope was a pope that lost, if you're wondering. Uh, they were pope for a while, then anti-pope. Uh, and and uh, they excommunicated each other. And sadly and appallingly, the bishops would sometimes appeal to Rome to come in and sort out the, the argument. Oh, my goodness. When you invite government into the tent, it comes. Even with our laws of marriage. We, just, we have two people who believe in Jesus and want to covenant with each other, but now we have to get the law involved, and they've got to get a license to be married. Think of how odd that really is before you make a covenant. And then once you get married, you may not be aware of this, but there are over 1,300 laws that apply to you that are different than they are if you are single. It changes your tax status. It changes your medical care. It changes how much money you can receive from the government, no matter how much you thought you were going to get. From the, it all changes. Why? Because we let them in. And when they come in, they come in. And they don't go away. It's kind of like construction on a highway. It never ends. 
They started work on the Ohio Turnpike, for example, when Noah was put into dry dock. <laughs> it's still there. And they still collect tolls. And if you ask them, why do you collect tolls? We collect tolls to pay for the road. Well, when are you going to stop? When the road's finished. When's the road finished? Eight days after Jesus returns. <laughs> They're not going to stop. So what happened? Some of you, by the way, are wondering, those weren't on the notes. We're, we're heading back now. <laughs> All the more important then to remember what we've been called to believe especially in times that we would consider troubled. I got to tell you, friends, I don't think these times are troubled. I, I have people that walk around so worried. I'm going to do a seminar on fear to police officers in San Antonio next, next week. Lord willing. Uh, and it's, it's an interesting thing. I talk to, about fear quite a bit. There's a wonderful book out just now, by the way, called Factfulness that you might want to look into. By every measure we are doing better, there are fewer wars. Then why are we so upset? Here it is. It's because we're being told to be upset 24-7 by our news and media. We are told to be outraged. And here's the weird bet. We're paying them to do that. We pay for the cable to bring it in to upset us. That's mentally ill people. That's a form of, of self-flagellation. Look it up. That's a, well, no, do not, get, do not Google that. That could go wrong. Um, and every other word I want to say, don't Google. Um, we're hurting ourselves and paying other people to help us hurt ourselves. I'm going to leave it at that. We have to realize we're not in troubled times. The Apostles' Creed was written in troubled times. Now, I'm going to look up here at the sound people. Are you getting an echo when I stand right here? Would you rather I stand over here? No, he wants to work it out. Okay. I don't care what you're going through, just suffer. Um, <laughs> the first time we see the Apostles' Creed was, uh, is in 390, but it is obvious that it was written very early, perhaps around 200, and at that time was called the symbolum, which means the symbol. Back then, a symbol had a different meaning. It means the encapsulation of who we are and what we believe. They referred to it as the symbol of the Trinity. I'm going to go down to 15 now on the, on the notes. This was an integral part, an integral part of the rite of baptism by the middle 200s. In other words, you would have to say it before you were baptized and say it after you were baptized. By that time, it was already widely believed and taught that each of the 12 apostles had contributed a line. And as I brought up last week, there's no history behind that. But as Campbell said, everything in there is what the apostles taught. And it is the encapsulation of our faith. It reflects exactly what all of those creedal statements in Scripture we looked at over the last few weeks says. It truly is a portable version of our faith that needs to be continued. And again, that's what Campbell said as well. These are the very words that were on the lips of the early believers that got them through their day and sometimes got them killed. These are the very words they said as they were thrown into fires, as they were thrown to the beast. When we say these words, we are echoing words said 
by the greatest among us, the bravest among us, the ones who passed on the faith, and yes, eventually, the books to us. The Apostles' Creed has changed a bit over time. In some areas, a line or two was added. In some areas, a line or two was taken away. The Church of England has two approved forms, one written in 1662, so it has that kind of English, and that's really what Campbell quoted in that letter. And others, a more modern language version uh, written in 2000. Lutherans footnote that line descended into hell because that makes some of us a little concerned. You just need to know that the word hell meant where the dead are. It didn't mean what we say, what, when we say hell, what that means. So they, they write descended to the dead. Several churches replaced that line, the Holy Catholic Church, with the Holy Christian Church. I prefer to substitute, when I do substitute, the church universal. Because that's what the phrase Catholic Church means. The Church of Denmark, which if you're not aware of this, not most, but a lot of places have an official state church. The Church of England is Episcopalian Anglican. The Church of Scotland is Presbyterian, for example. And the Church of Denmark, uh, their national churches still uses a phrase you are to say, we renounce the devil and all his doings and all his beings. And then you say the creed. And before baptism, they do the same thing. The Methodists sing the creed. It's number 881 in your United Methodist hymnal. 881. 881. That's the way we used to call out the numbers, by the way. But their version written by John and Charles Wesley omits the phrase to send it into hell. It just, they just decided they didn't like that bet. Several churches, however, notably the Roman Catholic, but others, use an interrogative, an interrogative version of the prayer, of the creed rather, before baptism. It is a powerful thing to stand before you enter the water and say these words. By the way, is it required for your baptism to be valid? Absolutely not. But what a powerful thing it is. So I'm going to not ask you to repeat or to read with me this creed. I'm going to do as it is done in churches and has been done for nearly 2,000 years. I'm going to ask you questions using the creed and having you respond, amen. Would you please stand? Do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, died, and was buried, rose from the dead, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father? Amen. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Ch Holy Church universal, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting? Amen. Let all of us say this together. This is our faith. This is the faith of the church. We are proud to profess it in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.